Hey friends, before the show I'd like to plug the store of our friends at Terracotta Distribution. At their storefront, shop.terracottadistribution.com, you'll find a wide range of Asian DVDs and Blu-rays from Kim Kidak to Jackie Chan, from Ho Shao Shen to Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell, aka the Japanese Evil Dead. This was even put out on a limited run VHS, folks. New titles are being added regularly, and if you go to shop.terracottadistribution.com and enter the discount code POFN. 10 that's p-o-f-n-1-0 this gives podcast on fire network listeners 10 percent off at checkout the discount code is p-o-f-n-10 and visit shop.terracottadistribution.com for more and let's get on with the show Welcome to Japan on Fire, episode 34 on Dallas. In our series of firsts that has included discussions on the first feature-length anime that was in black and white, the first feature-length anime in color, and now we have reached the first original video animation, often abbreviated as OVA, i.e. the first anime series to be released directly to video. It's called Dallas by the director of Ghost in the Shell and Pat Labor. My name is Kenny B. Uh, with me to break it all down, and I'm gonna ask him after uh, introducing him. Uh, so, Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast is with me, and uh, just out of curiosity, uh, had you watched uh, Dallas uh, before this uh, screen? No, I had not. You know, this is um, it's one of those films that you kind of, as a, as an anime fan know of you know you'd heard of it because it you know has this position of being the first out there and because of the people involved who go on then to do you know bigger things that i think probably got a bit more exposure on the international circuit you know it's something that was kind of there that that i kind of knew about and i just never got around to it until now yeah it's been it's represented by via american releases both on on disc and streaming but but you're right um it isn't part of the discussion as much as other ovas that followed i suppose um um so uh this is sort of our chance to perhaps uh give it a spotlight but uh, i i wanted it to be part of this as it turned out to be a little bit of a, a series on firsts where we go from now i don't know but uh, it, it certainly um, is uh, something I've been aware of, being a fan of the director Mamoru Oshii uh, through his movies, Ghost in the Shell, Pat Labor, Angel's Egg, and so forth. But uh, we'll um, we'll get to it. Uh, some brief contact information. Uh, this is Japan on Fire, the anime section of uh, Japan on Fire. We do live action, uh, of course, uh, uh, because on podcastonfire.com you'll find a back catalogue of Japan on Fire that has included... Uh, sort of director series on director Mamoru Oshii, but that obviously included his live action movies, uh, movies like Avalon and uh, uh, Stray Dog and Red Spectacles and things like that. He's one of those directors that has, has jumped back and forth. One year he does Avalon, a few years later he does an anime like The Sky Crawlers and what have you. So he's an interesting 
director in uh, in that regard and of course both the ghost in the shell uh, movies uh, the first one and uh, innocence so check out the back catalog we also have shows on hong kong cinema and uh, korean cinema we do bonus episodes every now and again we have done um, audio commentaries and uh, there's plenty of you to choose from uh, over there if you have any questions or feedback uh, if you watched uh, dallas or any other mamoru Oshi uh, movie let us know. Uh, share your opinion. Podcast on fire at googlemail.com. But you can also do it on uh, social media. Click the buttons at the top of our website to get to Facebook and Twitter. There's also a button to our Instagram and also a button to our iTunes feed. So you can subscribe and all of that. And we would very much be happy if you left a rating and a review over on iTunes. And if you join us over on Facebook and our Facebook group, you can follow show updates and discussions. And obviously when we post uh, shows, they will be there as well and our twitter feed is at podcast on fire by the way i write about hong kong and taiwanese movies on sogoodreviews.com and uh, my tweets are available at sogoodreviews and at the time of recording it finally happened the pandemic isn't over but the wait the drought meaning the dr- drought that uh, the absence uh, of east screen west screen uh, it, it meant a drought in my podcast queue is finally all over. I've been able to dose myself and pour several episodes of East Green, West Green all over my f- ears. Because you're back. You solved your tech <laughs> issues finally. One day it just appeared. A show! We have a show! It's here! <laughs> it's from ages ago, but it's here. So how did you do it? Or, di- or did you do it? Uh, or, or, or did the computer solve itself? <laughs> no, uh, I found I found a... Uh... A software solution uh, to the tech issue I was having, you know, it wasn't a cheap solution. It, it, I had to, I had to spend a little bit to, to make the podcast, you know, alive again. But uh, it, it worked and it filled the gap that was the problem that I had had in this transition. I mean, anybody who works with Mac and Apple Mac will understand that they just like to update until things that you love are obscure. Um, and then this happens across across their hardware, you know, whether it's the, the iPhone, the iPad, or you know, the actual desktop computers. One of the pieces of software that I have, have been very reliant on since pretty much since day one when we first started recording, um, which, you know, helped me to get the show up and keep the feed straight and everything. The software still exists, but it's not supported by the current operating systems, the old computer that I had used since we started the show um, could no longer upgrade to any generation of operating system because it was, you know, it's just so, so outdated. And I couldn't use other pieces of software. You know, you know, I would open it and say, you have to upgrade, you know, to the newer version and you can't upgrade because you can't get the newer version of the operating system. This, this kind of catch 22 problem that happens when tech upgrades itself which is a shame because the computer still works amazingly well it just you know you you can't do any any modern software with it anymore Um, but uh, I managed to find a solution because the old software I used doesn't work they the developers decided they were done upgrading it for the new operating systems so Looked and looked and looked and looked, and I was at the point where I was probably thinking, well, I probably got to go and, you know, move things over to the PC side, which I really didn't want to do. Join us. <laughs> this is not to say anything bad about PC people. It's just my workflow is, I'm so used to working on a Mac that, you I know, hear. it's just, 
the familiarity is there. And so, but, um, so finally I, I got the solution. It's working. I'm back in the workflow. Now it's just a case of uh, figuring out uh, what we're going to talk about, what we're going to watch, what can I get access to. Well, uh, very happy that you're back and uh, let the camp people know uh, your URL and uh, and uh, in your in in your words, uh, what what happens over there at the East Screen, West Screen? What do you cover? Yeah, we talk about films, you know, usually contemporary films. Although um, I might might play with going back to some older stuff just because of available availability. There's not a lot of new stuff coming out of Hong Kong cinema right now because of the situation we're in. Um, there, there are some films that, um, I can cover. There are some festivals that have been online that have been showing some current stuff that, you know, you can get access to pretty easily. So we're going to look into some of that stuff. Um, and, uh, of course, Kevin always comes up with some brilliant ideas too on stuff that we can cover or talk about. So, so yeah, I mean, hopefully we'll keep the format the same as it's been. I'd like to slim it down a little bit. Um, the last episode that we've done together, which hasn't been released at the time of this recording, is kind of a slightly different format, um, just because we kind of, you know, said, hey, it's, let's get together and talk about this thing. And I'm like, it's, okay. It's Hong Kong Cinema Toy Reviews. Like, yeah. <laughs> you, you buy those uh, massively expensive, uh, what do they call those premium toys? Uh, that uh, people, people hot toys yes or... that's right because they, they, they've done hot toys for uh, connected to Hong Kong cinemas like uh, podcast toy reviews in a very non-constructive fashion you can't see us but we promise we have it it would probably be more popular than Hong Kong cinema at this point because <laughs> there are a lot of people who like those toys and buy those toys so so yes you can find us over at kongcast.com that's k-o-n-g-c-a-s-t dot com and the show is East Screen West Screen and you can hear our very own Kenny B right over there on our latest episode. Yes, we did a show a couple of months ago on the independent feature, Go Back to China, starring Richard M. So uh, check it out. Enjoyable to listen back to the discussion. Ah, oh, still sound like a prick. <laughs> Haven't learned anything pre-COVID or post-COVID, but whatever. And uh, find the screen, West screen, wherever you get podcasts. So as for the rundown here in the Dallas episode, uh, we have two specific sections. Um, and we're going to start with the background no notes that I assembled from the retrospective documentary on uh, this four-part series. And after that is done, we'll uh, review it. It's not going to be like this episode-by-episode uh, episode breakdown or anything. That's not the format because it is two hours after all. So I treated it as a... As a two-hour movie, really, personally. So, uh, because uh, I don't know about you, I, I couldn't do a podcast where you break down a, you know, twenty-episode series, thirty-episode series, because uh, uh, I think I would run out of steam, personally. And I know people do that format really well, but that would be difficult for me. So I'm glad this was kind of a. Um, well, it's a movie. It's a continual story. So it is a two-hour movie. So, so would you be able to sustain that passion? Like uh, episode 34 of uh, blah, blah, blah. Or is that too much of a challenge to keep uh, keep going to like conclude a run? I think that would be rough. I, I remember at one point over on the site, I was doing um, weekly write-ups for uh, Daniel Wu's cable series, Into the Badlands. And so I would like do a blog, kind of a blog entry episode review. And I think that was only like like a handful of episodes, like eight episodes or something for the first season. And I was already kind of like feeling it like by the end, I'm like, eh, and I didn't do one for the second or third season because <laughs> it was just like 
that's that's a little bit more than I think I'm geared for in terms of writing. And I don't think I was really adding a lot of value by the end to some of the some of the things that I was saying. So I kind of held off for the later seasons. Um, I, I could not, I mean, especially if you get into something like, I was thinking, could I do this for the first, you know, the, the, the season of Macross, which is like 36 episodes. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think I could. I mean, I could do the series overall, but I wouldn't want to do it episode by episode. You know, look at something like one of the things we're probably going to mention is uh, the series USA Atsura, which um, Oshi worked on a couple of the episodes. He worked on some of the episodes in, in the first two movies, but that's like 195 episodes. And that's short by the standards of things today, like, you know, One Piece or Dragon Ball. It's like, you know, where you're looking at episodes into the multiple multiple hundreds, you know. So it's like, I uh, kudos to those guys out there who can do episode by episode. Um, because for me, I think I, I think I would lose some steam. I, I, I need more variety in my life. Yeah, even, yeah, even if you love it. I mean, I, I could probably talk a little bit about uh, Kimaguri Orange Road. Uh, but and, and I love the series and I love the OVAs and I love the movie but it's 48 episodes and uh, there is a, uh, an arc and there is a story but there's also a similar structure to some of the episodes because that was a weekly series because there's a misunderstanding and then they are friends at the end and maybe they're a little bit more in love than they were before maybe and I, I love it but it's it's sort of like yeah same thing happened in episode 12 as episode 28. Uh, but anyway, uh, Dallas from 1983. And the plot uh, goes as follows, taken from Wikipedia. In the near future, humanity has drained Earth of its resources. To sustain Earth's populace, mining colonies are created on the moon to provide vital natural resources. After generations of mistreatment from the Earth federal government, the colonists uh, retaliate by performing acts of terrorism, leading directly to a conflict with their over- Seers. A mysterious structure on the moon called Dalos is worshipped by the colonists and gives them hope. And a young colonist by the name of Shun Nomonura is caught into the fray as he joins the rebels, dramatically affecting the lives of those close to him with his actions. A generational divide between the younger born colonists and their older compatriots arise as the allegiances to Earth as humanity's motherland is questioned. So yes. This is not for kids. It's a uh, it's a mature story. So yes, this four part in total 120 minute science fiction series was released on four tapes, VHS tapes between December 1983 and August 1984, and it was co-helmed by Mamoru Oshii, who across as Paul mentioned 1983 and 1984 also made his first feature animated movies as director. Yurusei Yatsura, Only You. That's its added title. And Yurusa Yatsura 2, Beautiful Dreamer. And I, I haven't seen that series. I mean, I've, I have an interest in him. And I, I like the look of the series and there's a bunch of films, but I, I haven't seen it. So do you have any um, like uh, impression of it? Uh, have you seen some of it or a movie uh, here and there? If it's any fun, if it's any good and even deep? Back in the 80s, 90s, I was a big fan of the manga artist Rumiko Takahashi. And I never really followed... USA I saw that much because for me it was her other series that came later called Ranma One Half, which really got me hard in, into uh, manga reading at the time and and collecting a lot of the releases that were 
initially VHS and very expensive. And part of the problem with the USA at Sura series is availability. Because of so many episodes, there's like six movies, which Oshi did the first two. And I think there's like over 10 um, OVA releases. And if you look at availability now, I, I think the second movie, um, Beautiful Dreamer, is on Netflix. Where can you get the rest of the stuff? It's like, I'm a completionist. It's like, I want to watch the series before I get into the movies, you know, uh, because it's like you jump into one of the movies and you're not sure who a lot of the characters are. And yeah, I mean, you can you can go some places like the tube that has the U in front of it and, and find some stuff. But I'd rather, you know, where's the where's the legitimate release? I mean, back in the day when they were trying to sell the VHS tapes, they were super expensive. So can you imagine, you know, they release like, you know, two episodes or four episodes today. It's like, you know, uh, on DVD. And I don't know if you're thinking of the same um, run of episodes, but if you're thinking of Animago, at least on Laserdisc, they didn't uh, release the whole series. They only partially yeah. did it, uh, which is, uh, and, and they did DVDs, of course, but those DVDs are elusive and expensive, and it's hard to get a full box set of it all. So, and, and it, it, it isn't on Crunchyroll either, I think. So, you know, you should have luck in that, in that way. Uh, but I do li- li- like the look of it because uh, I, I want to support uh, his work, and uh, he, he's a director that um, can do lighthearted stuff, but also uh, get you with some. Um, deeper religious stuff introspective stuff uh, too so uh, you never know where uh, if it's going to be playful or not but he wasn't the main driving force between Dallas uh, and the concept that was uh, Hisayuki Toriyomi who uh, he didn't get directing credit but he was essentially the co-director uh, on the series uh, which is detailed in the uh, in the uh, documentary on the DVD. Uh, Toriyomi was a veteran of animation in the 70s, directing the science ninja team Gachaman anime television series. Based on that name, you should probably watch it right now. That's a fantastic name. For, for people in the US, if you're from my generation, you will know that as Battle of the Planets. Okay, nice and generic. <laughs> so, so, so kids don't have to read. It was They, they, they pulled a little bit of a, a Carl Masek Harmony Gold uh, kind of thing with that series where uh, whatever studio who got it, uh, they took it and then they kind of chopped it up. They took out a lot of the violence and they added in a new character, kind of kind of kind of the way, you know, that Power Rangers was treated with um, the Zordon character. If anybody watched the U.S. version of Power Rangers, um, they created this animated robot called Seven Zark Seven, who was kind of like you know, the director of the team. And, you know, I would find all this out much later because I, you know, this was, this was a morning cartoon that I used to get up and watch um, pretty religiously only. And then to find out later that the actual Gatchaman was like five times as violent you know, because the U.S. <laughs> census would cut, would cut out a lot of the... I'm going to show this to my kid. Whoa! So, um, so yeah, it's it that that has a pretty significant history for anime making its way over onto the tv screens in the u.s very cool well uh, toriyomi was also one of the founding members of studio piero who produced the dallas uh, but earlier they worked on this on series such as the wonderful adventures of nils which is based on the books by swedish author selma lagerlöf and uh, mamoru Ushi directed 18 episodes of of nils so this working relationship uh, goes back uh, Ushi said in um, the documentary that's called remembering dallas 
reflecting on this video boom that was over by the time they produced uh, that documentary in 2003, I believe, that Dallas was a thing of its time and saying, I wonder if a project like this could even be made today. But even back then, getting Dallas off the ground as a sci-fi movie, uh, because they went at it that way, you know, with vehicles and robots, if that wasn't supporting a toy line, your odds of getting a production going was, in his words, kind of impossible. They approached it on that basis too, like make it for the sake of toys. As the project uh, was discussed and uh, rolled along, we we enter sort of the discussion of OVA, standing for Original Video Animation, uh, animation produced directly for video, whether episodic or even, uh, I think anyway, there are examples of movies being OVA, but uh, anyway... Uh, so because uh, they, 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 these weren't the movies that first went to cinema and then video, it went directly to video and uh, to be released uh, mostly in small parts over a, n- not a set amount of time. Dallas came out pretty fast, but there are OVAs like Bubblegum Crisis that uh, were produced over a number of years. So there wasn't this pressure, Paul, clearly, on uh, OVA makers that, uh, okay, you can release it this way. But within a year or anything. So they, they, uh, they clearly allowed uh, time for uh, quality productions to be produced. You know, uh, but, you know, if you followed it back in the day, maybe that was infuriating to watch episode three. And then 10 months later, you get another 20 minutes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't think uh, I, I didn't get the impression that you were following OVAs to that degree where you were sitting tapping your fingers waiting for the next episode of a thing to come at some point it doesn't sound like that that was your fan experience no I mean again going back to this era where anime and manga were kind of uh, picking up steam you know you had titles coming through on like Viz comics back in the day and initially you had some things coming across that they tried to put in standard comic book form rather than in the manga form initially. So I think Dark Horse had uh, some stuff that it was releasing. And then eventually they got to the point where I think they just said, ah, oh, the heck with it. You know, we're just going to do what they do in Japan. So they, they stopped trying to reformat it. So with a lot of the books you get today, you know, you read it uh, from right to left instead of left to right, like you would in, in Japan. They've just gone through with the translation rather than trying to rearrange it and make it work for the American reader. Um, and, and most of the release releases, they have it a big page in the back of the book says, stop. If you're starting here, you're reading it the wrong way. <laughs> Go to the other side because you know, Americans are dumb. So <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's what we deal with here. I would appreciate such an instruction. Uh, I'm pretty dumb. So uh, that would suit me. So don't, don't, uh, uh, don't put a like for American inst- American instructions only type of banner on that uh, on that notion. It would work for Kenny B as well. I can remember back in the day some of the some of the bigger titles that were coming through. I don't remember if it was Animigo or or some of the, some of the other releases. Things like um, Gunbuster and Dangayo. I you know I, p- I picked up some of them again. Um, I was fairly young at the time. Didn't have a lot of cash in the wallet, and these things were not cheap. You just go back a few years earlier, and I mean, I was going to science fiction conventions just to scour the dealer room, and there would be usually like one or two guys who would be selling bootleg, you know, anime releases. And so 
that's where I was getting a lot of stuff like Vampire Hunter D, uh, the GoGo 13 movie, um, things that were, you know, making waves in Japan at the time, but hadn't found legitimate releases in the U.S. market. They, they, you know, you can find those things easily enough, usually on DVD now for very reasonable prices. But, you know, back then it was like you were dealing on this illicit side of, of, of uh, fandom. It was interesting to see the kind of genres that exist, existed back then. It was usually the titles that were a bit more adult, you know, not X-rated, but, you know, things, things that would be considered maybe R-rated and things that were mostly geared around violence and, and adult themes. Whereas today, you know, you, you've got such a wide variety of genres. I mean, I like action. I like violence. I can handle adult material, but it's certainly not my favorite genre when, when I talk about uh, stuff that really draws me to anime. Back then, I didn't have exposure to that kind of stuff, you know, because it was very limited in terms of the genres you could get access to. So today it's like, you know, a wonderland that you can get access to pretty much everything. And I hope that show is out um, in complete form, by the way. The, the Wonderful Adventures of Nils, because I, I, I tend to get drawn to when Japanese makers uh, adapt something from somewhere far, far, far away. <laughs> uh, like I'm watching The Wonderful Wizard of Oz right now. And I'm enjoying it very much. And they did a full, uh, full uh, fifty-two episode run of that, and it was dubbed too, and uh, brought to America. So, uh, and so people like that. But um, I, I, I tend to get drawn to um, to that. Uh, but um, but there's so much to choose from. You can only, I can only focus on one thing at, at one time. So, uh, back to Dallas, uh, the makers of it, they did approach Bandai in the expected way to pitch a show with the attached commercial notion of uh, selling toys along with it. I mean, I, I might as well stop there. Was that ever appealing to you to buy the tie-in merch like toys? Or you were too old to even contemplate, like, I'm going to watch my watch my robot anime and then I'm going to buy go to Toys R Us and pick up my toy and have it keep me company as I watch it. <laughs> Kenneth, come on! You're never too old to buy toys. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, like I, I know the geeks, the geeks are ruling the world now. Maybe not so back then. <laughs> we were talking about hot toys earlier. You know, I, this is a, this is an interesting thing because as they talk in the documentary about Dallas and their desire to get away from the toy market, because when you look at Dallas, you really have to look at thematic juggernauts that were kind of playing at the time. Uh, one they mentioned being Gundam which is, you know, it's still huge. I mean, if you ask a random person on the street if they've heard of Dallas, I'd argue that they're going to say no. But Yeah, I know Sue Ellen kill JR, right? Might know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they've heard of uh, Gundam, then I'm, it's indicative of uh, of popular culture. I mean, just look at Ready Player One, right? I mean, you, you've got that kind of reference in there. You don't have a Dallas reference in there. So, so the idea that, you know, you have these juggernaut titles um, that they're trying to to work against and trying to do so by saying, well, we don't really want to market toys. Can we get away with that? You know, it is it is a very challenging thing. But I mean, pretty much everything has some kind of tie in. I mean, even even your romantic comedies. I mean, I'm sure that uh, Beautiful Dreamer had things, you know, T-shirts, had pillows, had, you know, CD soundtracks going going along with it. Um, for, you know, the Yurase, I mean, Yurase, it's her alum, the character of Lum and her, you know, with her horns and her tiger bikini is almost iconic. It was iconic, an iconic symbol for anime 
for a very long time. And that's coming from a romantic comedy. You know, you, I, I think that the idea of marketing going along hand in hand with this is, is interesting. I think, you know, you think of this in terms of like, okay, if you look at it from Western science fiction, you've got uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey on one side. <laughs> They're not marketing the monolith toy, right? In, in the store it, for kids. With, I want it now. With, with the little, you know, the the, the little humanoid uh, simians there, you know, throwing a you know little toy bone that they can throw up in the air or something. So how how so how do we play with this beyond <laughs> that? Well, yeah. Um, but conversely, you've got Star Wars, which you know kind of set the standard for toys going forward um, with regard to, to to marketing and merchandising. So. It's interesting that they were trying to take that approach, and I I don't think, like they say, I don't think you could get away with that today, even if you sit down and say, well, you know, we're going to make a serious anime. I, perhaps the only one who could get away with that is is Miyazaki anymore, and I, even a lot of his stuff is going to have merchandise surrounding it. I mean, the one that comes to mind is um, The Wind Also Rises, I think, which was much more historical and and a piece, you know, you compare that to some of his more popular culture pieces, you're probably not going to get a lot of merchandising out of that versus Nausicaa or Laputo or something. So, yeah, but I mean, you're still going to have some stuff that goes along with it even so. And, uh, uh, oh, oh, by the way, before I forget it, uh, um, I remember looking into buying like the CD soundtracks for Kimagori Orange Road because I love the songs. Uh, I love the pop songs. And uh, they're out there. There isn't enough to find. But then you stumble upon things like, it's like a, there was like a mixtape, but obviously put out on CD, where the voice actors perform as the characters as radio DJs playing their favorite song. So it's like a little bit of a little bit of a radio theater thing they put on the cd as well so there's always an angle to the merch yeah. that uh, even, even though that show orange road is not about a pop group they they do play in a pop band every now and again but that's not the basis of it and they don't work at the radio station either but uh, they, they found an angle and um, and crafted a release uh, based on that there's an interesting subculture that kind of extends out of that where you almost have these characters in some in some of these shows taking on a life of their own, you know. So, like, I'm thinking of a character like um, Lin Min May, and you know, from Macross, or more specifically, like Eve from Megazone 23. They are the precursors of sort of your 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 AV virtual idols today, you know, where they would where the the actress would you know, come out with like a birthday release for the character, you know, as the character, you know, uh, talking about the, the, their birthday or having a CD party for their birthday or stuff like that. So taking on the identity of the character and and going beyond what that character does in the show was something that was kind of started early on and, and evolved into this sort of uh, virtual idol thing that that still exists today. Which was the uh, central plot of Macros Plus, uh, albeit um, it became uh, quite uh, dangerous, that uh, virtual idol thing. So, um. If anybody follows music, I mean, Hatsune Miku is still huge, I mean, as, as a virtual idol. He releases albums every year, works with different artists, and I mean, completely virtual, but people love her. And uh, going back to that, also out of the projects projects that that they juggled, uh, talking with Bandai and so forth, uh, Studio Piero talked 
well enough, I suppose, of Dallas that, that it stood out and he went ahead with the proposed idea of being a TV series. And as Paul mentioned, the makers had the success of Gundam in uh, mind. It had been on TV since 1979 and broke through as something to watch and something to play with. Again, toys. Uh, but they all realized producing sci-fi is hard work. And it might have been a little bit cocky looking back, uh, but but they did say, we wanted to outdo Gundam. And uh, they went into creating a mech show, first and foremost. And and I don't know, I've never seen Gundam. Is that an easy, digestible action show? Or because it ran so long, presumably, it uh, played it serious as well? Or even deep? Or what do you know about Gundam in that uh, regard? I mean, it's uh, how could you describe it? Because I, 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 I don't want to talk too deeply about it because I haven't seen all of it. I've seen much of the first series and the the uh, very excellent follow up film that came many years later, Char's Counterattack. But then you've got like Dragon Ball. You've got all these spin offs that end up happening. Some of them occur within the context of the main timeline. But then some of them do not. They go off into weird offshoots on their own. And there's, it's it's just thinking about trying to keep up with it now is kind of exhausting. But And and again, as with USA, it's sort of the part of the issue is availability. I do think that they've released the first three. The first season is three films, sort, sort of uh, in the style that they've done with uh, other things where they condense them down. It's It's not overly deep but i mean it's 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 dealing with a lot of similar themes that i think dallos is dealing with and and one of the things that we'll we talk about dallos that we'll talk about is i think dallos is maybe borrowing a bit too heavily from gundam thematically we wanted to outdo gundam and we're gonna take take a few things from it as well haha <laughs> watch us uh, what they also took uh, influences from, in their own words, was uh, the likes of First Blood, the Stallone movie. Uh, thinking about the resilience of John Rambo, starting with a knife and then fashioning weapons and ending up with big weapons uh, in the end. And they, they wanted the, char- the characters, the oppressed workers, to combine what they had, putting elements together like Lego blocks. So, you know, the commercial thinking for the toy industry was obviously still at the forefront a little bit as they started to craft uh, the universe. But at one point, they all realized this isn't suited for TV. And it wouldn't be the kind of show with this type of story that will sell toys anyway. So it was turning into something more serious. Maybe not as approachable and easily digestible. Maybe maybe too highbrow for TV at the time, um, as one person said. But rather than simplifying the idea, their thinking was, uh, as they developed Dallas, if not TV, where can we showcase what we have brewing here? And it seems like, without hesitation, a suggestion by the involved departments uh, came through immediately was to release it to video. And this experimentation, this thought of experimentation was shared and suggested throughout all the companies involved, let's try it, see if it works. And in December 1983, episode 2 of Dallas came out, called The Order to Destroy Dallas. On VHS, yes, episode 2 was the first released uh, <laughs> uh, anime episode uh, that went directly to video. And more on that reversal of uh, release order in a, in a little bit. So the creators know or knew they had a release style and also felt inspired to experiment and try things. Uh, they thought maybe they were able to stick to their ideas without resistance now that they have the direct-to-video switch here. And uh, creating it as an OVA, aspects aspects like budget wasn't as restrictive as TV, and it could be produced as a high-quality project, but could not be on the same level as a theatrical movie. 
So the makers were sort of walking that new middle line in terms of production quality. But uh, being first and throwing uh, and and getting money thrown at the project, they they did feel they set a standard. Uh, and uh, one of the makers explains in his view that after the Gundam boom, anime was in a bit of a deadlock, which is something they don't get, go into detail about because that probably requires another documentary in itself. Uh, and the notion of OVA opened up possibilities uh, of uh, producing in general since a range of projects hit video after Dallas's release. So those who felt TV was too restrictive and movies unobtainable found a middle ground on video. So again, uh, as for why part two came out uh, first in December 1983 and part one called Remember the Folly Move came out in January 1984. The interviewees seemed to think it was a conscious decision by the salespeople because they didn't deliver the show mislabeled or anything. Uh, is that one or two? I don't know. That's just thrown on a tape, release it. Um, it was flashier, so they wanted that episode to lead despite being part of a continual story. And as one person said, maybe they argued that Star Wars started mid-story, so why can't we? We have a scroll. That explains everything, so it should work out. It's not a terrible solution because you do get a recap in the form of the written scroll. But um, it's not the way to watch it, really. Two, one, three, and four. Just watch it from beginning to end. So, um, so yeah, because I had that in mind. Okay, at least there's a recap. But, but we don't get to experience like the kidnapping or the introduction of characters. So, uh, Oshi, who is interviewed in the documentary... You know, perhaps to get somewhere creatively and to tune himself to get into a creative mindset, gave up thinking of Dallas as hard sci-fi in his word. And um, the conditions of the studios and production houses meant, in his view, that it wasn't possible to do this anyway. So, for, for instance, no one was really at hand, present at the studio to write in that style. No one was there who had an understanding of how to craft within those boundaries of hard sci-fi. He kind of realized that and then went on uh, to um, direct uh, within the boundaries uh, that uh, was there for him. He admits that he's a detail-oriented director. Uh, he, he chuckles about it, uh, that uh, he's so anal about certain things. So, for instance, the firefights on the moon would mean that the casings go upwards immediately after ejected from the gun, because they're, they're not shooting lasers at each other here. They're, they're shooting actual firearms, gunpowder with, with uh, bullets and, and, so, and such. And uh, if I understood things correctly, and I don't remember the scene right now, but he says that in another scene involving a Gatling gun, somehow Oshi had the means to demonstrate how the casings would fall to the animators. Like they could go to a gun range or something and just shoot for a little bit and animate that. Uh, I don't know if you saw that part of the documentary where, where he talks about uh, demonstrating a Gatling gun, but um, it, it's certainly um, not impossible judging by... Subsequent works of Oshia, uh, there's been distinct weapons designs, whether in Avalon or the Stray Dog and Red Spectacles, and certainly, yeah, certainly Ghost in the Shell. But uh, it sounded like an amusing thing that take the take the guys out to a gun range and uh, play with a Gatling gun. So working in anime is good, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You got to do that field research. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, we we talk of uh, that this being a co-directed venture between Oshi and uh, Hisayuki Toriyomi, and they, they would differ in certain ways. The, the latter actually didn't really like sci-fi and favored the reality of the setting, and hence weapons with gunpowder was used rather than some elaborate futuristic design. 
it wasn't a fight necessarily between the directors and the, the direction. He was very respectful in talking of uh, of Toriyomi's work, yeah. So it wasn't this sort of in studio fight or anything. And uh, we'll we'll get uh, into that a little bit more. But he he's mentioned some specifics. Oshida, he, he was particularly happy with the scenes of large crowds and the cyborg dogs, for instance, as he felt the uh, studio Piero were really good at that. Going back to Nils uh, the Nils Holgersson series, where animals were used, and they they created like um, uh, exciting, good looking. Uh, busy scenes and uh, he felt that detail was beneficial because it's no good if you have a crowd that all look the same cut and pasted essentially and then your lead character shows up and then stands out it needs to be varied it needs to be alive that detail is beneficial to those scenes it it gives us an impression that there's a ton of different people there uh, living there on 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 the moon Uh, going back a little to the directing duo again the, the documentary specifically breaks down the directing duties like this. Uh, Hisayuki Toriyomi directed part one, Oshi part two. They split drama and action for part three with Oshi handling action. It, there's no mention of part four, but I have a feeling it followed the structure of three because uh, uh, the episode title of part three is uh, all, almost the same as part four. They just slept a part two on there. So it's uh, sort of a big final hour long uh, episode. So I, I have a feeling they worked on this uh, at the same time. Uh, time uh oh she said it was it was difficult but not because of his uh teacher as he calls him out of respect hisayuki toriyomi because if you're working as two directors paired up it would have been difficult regardless in his word there was a lack of unified purpose uh, working separately didn't unite their vision as it should have which is something i think he saw more in retrospect rather than at the time there was a mutual understanding uh and uh, you know, in their own way, they got to achieve what they wanted. But he, Oshi, felt there needed to be ever so slightly more connective tissue between uh, the drama and the action and the respective direction. I mean, you you, you watch part of, at least part of that documentary. Did you get a sense that um, like there was no bad blood? There was just an honesty about it wasn't bad, but it could have been better, kind of thing. Or what did you think of uh, watching Oshi look back on? working on his own and Toriyomi working on his own. I, in some ways, I find the documentary to be better than the actual OVA series because you you get these this sort of interesting dynamic that was happening behind the scenes, and it explains a lot, especially in terms of how I saw the series, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But one of the things that I think that probably is highlighted very well in the series and it's unfortunate because you know they they interview four people but um tori-san is not there oh only on audio a little bit but yeah they they have an audio clip of him at one point but you have oshi kind of reflecting back and and at the time he was an up-and-coming director and you know he had he was having success on the usa at sura series and with the, the the first two films that were in production and he's the rising star Right. So I think getting his name attached as director to this project was something that was going to help push it forward. And you have uh, Tori-san, who's the older generation. And because of the way Japanese Japanese society is structured, you know, there's this level, there's these levels that happen. So you've got the rising star in the older generation and pretty much the, the production company, I got the sense, wanted to go with the rising star, but 
they had to give respect to the older generation and and Oshi had to you know so it, they they talk a lot about you know Oshi referring to him as teacher as sensei or as master you know this master student relationship they talk about it as parent child relationship in many ways and the child doesn't always want to do what the parent tells them to do but that you know even when you get old right the child gets old the child becomes a senior citizen but the parents still there the parents always going to be older the parents always going to have this level of authority right so there's this sense that the two of them had different working styles they had different expectations for what they wanted to see in the series they were working separately you know it was clear they didn't see eye to eye but there was this level of respect that they had for each other but they weren't able to break through that and and get that into the project i think and that's why you get sort of this imbalance um, across the episodes which we'll talk more into later but it's very interesting to see even now where he's kind of older he's had success i think this was from this this documentary was from 2003 so like 20 years later you know she's he's the master now in many ways but he still has to speak in sort of reverential terms about his teacher um and at one point i think um they interview uh, the sound director and he's talking about you know this is this sort of you know the older generation had a certain way of doing things and that wasn't the way that the newer generation was was doing things you know they had a different style and they reference uh, miyazaki you know miyazaki also from sort of the older generation and if anybody has seen some of the documentaries on miyazaki you know he can be a bear <laughs> to work with as a director right because he's got his vision he's got his way that he wants you know to do things so I think that seeing that sort of dynamic and the way that Oshi talks about it and, and some of the other people who worked on the film talk about that relationship um, is is very interesting. And even even, you know, now he has to be somewhat, you know, reverential in the way that he, he talks about the past. It's it, again, it's not that they were they had arguments or fights, but, you know, they obviously didn't agree with the direction they wanted to, to to see the show go and you can see that play out i mean there are things in this that you'll say oh yeah very much looks like something that you'd later see again in stray dogs right so i think you know for me it was it was far more interesting to see sort of see them talk about that kind of back and forth the little bit of tension that was there it's almost kind of like a star is born kind of a thing you know where it's like yeah, the older generation's kind of fading out and the newer generation's coming up and, you know, they're still having to work together. I mean, b- before we move on, in general, is he a director you rate or, like me, uh, the, you know, I don't like everything he's done. I even hate some of the things he's done, Oshi. But, um, you know, you know, do, do, do you see him be more successful as an anime director, in your view, or do you rate some of his... Uh, live action stuff uh, like Avalon or you're more like go ghost in the shell is where it's at. And that's where he's going to, that's where, that's where he thrives and, and pet labor, of course. You know, ghost in the shell is, is such a beloved piece of anime that I, I think it's almost to the point of being overrated in some ways, um, especially cons- when compared with the source material, which I, I like much, much better because you've had so much done in 
under the name of Ghost in the Shell since that movie, there's just a huge fandom that's built up around it. He, his name is very strongly uh, associated with that. But again, I think if you look at the work going back to Yurisei Yatsura, his live action work on Avalon, which I really like, um, you know, it's as, as a film, he does some really interesting things there. But again, there are things in there that are very significantly his style that you can point to. You yeah, know. It's always a dog. <laughs> and and there's always Gatlin guns. Yes. <laughs> uh, sometimes on helicopters, but they're still there. You know, he doesn't have a huge filmography, right? We're not, you know, you're not looking at this massive outpouring of work like you might see with other directors. There's not a whole lot to choose from with, within the range. So I think for some people, they're going to like some of the stuff. They're going to uh, find some things that they don't like. But overall, I think if you like his style and you like some of the thematic elements that he plays with, that's going to be a recurring thing. So you'll tend to come away liking more of his work, especially later in his career. You know, sometimes he was really overbearing with his uh, pet themes. Uh, it wasn't always successful when he put religion front and center. It was all, almost like uh, to the point of parody, but sometimes it was affecting. I mean, probably my favorite movie of his, and I, I say I'm stupid, and I am, but I love Angel's Egg, and I love sitting there sort of um, reflecting on it. Uh, it's made as a very elusive film. There's not a whole bunch of dialogue, and it's very religious in theme, but its atmosphere is fantastic. It was made uh, two years after, after Dallas, so it couldn't have been far off starting production on that one. and uh, But but I love his straight writing too, uh, when he just settles down to tell a story with characters and don't care too much about symbolism. You can get writing, and I specifically say writing because he didn't direct Gene Raw, A Wolf Brigade, but for all intents and purposes, it really is his baby because he's been crafting that universe, that Kerberos saga universe through movies he's directed himself prior, and then he wrote uh, the anime Gene Raw. And uh, it, it suits him very well. Uh, he's, he can also be playful and as silly as, as silly as OB, as uh, Pat Labor shows you. That is, you know, can be a very funny template. So, um, but but Avalon probably is uh, I, I rank very highly as, as well because uh, it it works in in all the ways it's uh, he's intending to. It's not too pretentious, not too art house as uh, characters uh, contemplate what what is happening because I really think. The, the striking visuals and the ideas go hand in hand and to shoot it in live action Polish language it's, it's not as pretentious of a choice as you might think because his influences has connected to European cinema prior so I think uh, that was his way of uh, uh, getting as close to that as, uh, as he possibly could you know uh, it, it was funny though because he, he can be a funny guy he's not this stoic uh, director uh, he, he's quick to point out in the documentary that Dallas would have been different had he as a hot name handled it all by himself maybe some characters would have been discarded too quickly and other things would be in focus instead so it's clear he ap- appreciates what Tichi was bringing how the elements combine even if it isn't perfect so it's a very frank discussion of how, how to make us are proud of their work but it shows up in bursts uh, this uh, the advantages and the disadvantages of having directors work uh, separately. It seems also that uh, the two directors didn't frequently consult each other either, but, but at its core they point out the soul of the show belongs to Hisayuki Toriyomi, the theme of it all does, uh, while Oshi, you know, added uh, quite a bit of action and so forth. So, uh, so um, and, and he himself, in the brief audio snippet we get from him, and he seems like a very jolly guy, 
he doesn't seem to mind Oshi's uh, focus on within the action scene. So, um, so it's not a documentary that's out to sort of um, paint this as a uh, as a troublesome production that uh, just happened to come out in the end and was the first and all of that. So, uh, but uh, the final background notes uh, notes for now. Uh, after its video release of uh, four parts totaling two hours, a decision was made to edit Dallas into an 85-minute film, which was released as a Dallas special in 1985. And that was reportedly the basis for the English dub of the film that was released by Celebrity Home Entertainment in 1991 as Battle for Moon Station Dallas. So... At least they kept the name, rather than the Battle of the Planets. No sign of the original name whatsoever. It's gone. At least Dallas, they, they, they kept it here. I wasn't afraid of uh, adults or kids uh, confusing it with uh, a hot TV show at the time. Let's get on to the brief opinions. Uh, first of all, I'll deliver mine first, and then uh, I'm going to be quiet for a little bit. Uh, I do like this, actually. I, I don't know what the state of anime was like. I, they make us talk of that in the documentary, but I, I don't know what the state of anime was like in 1983. Uh, I, I don't know how Dallas stood out technically versus the field as a story, but I think it's a tight show. I, it paints a picture uh, you know, of uh, the effects of colonization in desperate uh, times, uh, the oppression. It mixes that maturity with what i think is uh, exciting and sometimes very violent action since it paints this across two hours rather than eight or twelve i think uh, ocean collaborators don't go overboard with the theme and the depth and the spectacle i think they get enough of it in there in each area even though those moods are very different uh, action and drama and maturity there are threads of course here that makes you wonder where is dallas too at the end, I don't think it's terribly incomplete, though. Um, it, it, it ends on a sorrowful note, of course. It's not uh, hugely open-ended to a point where, like, <laughs> we we wanted to make it, but we couldn't. No one wanted to support us, so we painted ourselves into a corner, literally. So it's kind of on that note. But um, I, I gather you had some reservations about uh, the mixture of uh, elements and tones and moods, or what do you want to say in short about the Dallas? Well, I think it's important to point out that, as they mention in the documentary, this film is trying to follow the mold of of Gundam. You know, now Gundam was, uh, you know, started started in the set late seventies. You have, uh, you know, just a, a sort of a massive intellectual property franchise that that builds out of it. But, you know, the the core story of Gundam is that you've got colonists living in space, um, sometimes on these man made space stations called i think they're called sides um and then you've got people on earth you know there there's a there's sort of a new type of human you know not mutants but they're called new types who have a you know abilities and and they're emerging that's a great name by the way like uh, they're, they're they're new types of human what do we call them well why not new types excellent and that that actually i think that goes on to become the name of an actual magazine called new time <laughs> um it's based on based from that name you know so the idea is that you get these tensions between the people who live in space and the people who live on earth and politics and wars and and, and things all solved by fighting in giant robots um robots which in some cases were initially machines used for labor right so you can see that they're really drawing heavily, heavily from uh, the Gundam theme. I think that, you know, there's another 
thing that was kind of current at the time, maybe not quite as popular as uh, uh, as Gundam, and that is Macross, which was a, a year earlier in uh, 1982. And I think thematically you can see some things there too. I mean, you've got they're they're not as elegantly designed because again they're not there to sell toys, but um, the they have these transforming vehicles which basically just you know extend out these giant kind of walker legs and 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 you know so again their purpose was not really to sell to the toy market so these things are not as intricate or elegant as say the valkyrie transforming fighter jets and macross series and you know all the alien ship designs that you have in macross again trying to sell toys so you know we get it um but here too you know macross is centered around this big sort of you know, alien spacecraft um, that ends up harboring a good percentage of, you know, the, the, this population in outer space. And so here, too, you have this thing called Dallos, this thing on the moon that they don't really get into great detail as to what exactly it is, um, but it's revered in, in almost a religious way. Again, they're borrowing a lot of ideas. Um, there were other elements, too, that I think you could say, you know, they talk specifically about Rambo. I got less of a Rambo vibe because I think that's a problem with the characterization. But uh, definitely heavily influenced from, I think, Outland, the 1981 Sean Connery film about miners, you know, working in space. And Is that the movie where he has those uh, funny looking pants on? And, or is that another sci-fi movie? There's almost like a uh, a man man bikini that Sean Connery has on in a famous still, and he carries a gun. He has a mustache on, but maybe that's not Outland. Maybe that's a. Uh, I don't think it's that one. No. Okay. Um, Outland. He's basically just wearing a, a jumpsuit. He's the sheriff on the station. He's got a beard and a shotgun. Very much a western in space, but you know, you dealing with issues of the miners and you know suits depressurizing and what happens to you when that happens you know tend to explode that kind of thing we get visual elements referencing that here too as well so i think you can see a lot of that and the i mean these ideas are are certainly not universal and they're still used today i think anybody who watches for example the sci-fi show uh the expanse which i think started on sci-fi channel and then amazon bought it and has continued to run seasons of new seasons of it through their prime streaming uh hold that thought by the way uh zardos is the movie i'm talking about where uh, Connery has a very yeah. um well he, he's Mankini. probably is cool in that uh, <laughs> desert environment indeed he has a ponytail as well he's got long hair so uh but they, he obviously looks like uh no one else can rock that except Sean Connery. It's not a uh, an embarrassing sight because he's Sean Connery. So there is that. Uh, you you are familiar with uh, the things he was borrowing from. Did that mean it couldn't? It didn't find its own voice in your eyes, Dallas. In some in some ways, I mean, I I think because it come it comes down to this breakdown of you've got the theme, you've got uh, the technical elements that they're working on in in a, in an animation sense. And you've got the characters. And so where I think it works is, okay, the theme is there, but it's not really revolutionary. I get that they wanted to try and outdo Gundam, but they didn't really get there. Because what you've got is you've got four half-hour episodes competing against a juggernaut of episodes and things that would later become a spin-off series and, and, and movies and, and, and whatnot. There just isn't enough content, really, for them to, to develop that. Technically, as an animation, 
it looks gorgeous. I mean, what they're doing, like you said, with the crowd scenes and the contours, the shading, the colors, uh, the action sequence. I mean, going back and rewatching Macross today, it's a hard sell. I mean, because some of that animation is is not good. It's, you know, you can see where they're cutting corners in places. You can see where some of the character designs just like, what happened? You know, it's like they go from a very gorgeous panel to a panel that looks like my my seven-year-old drew it sometimes. <laughs> it's like, you know, so, and and I think Gundam, as an even earlier show, was subject to some of those same animation stressors of the era, you know, where they're really just trying to pump out episodes as quickly and cheaply as possible. So here, you've got really a great attention to detail on the animation, the colors, the look of it. It's a gorgeous look, where, where it tends to fall apart for me. You know, gorgeous look, okay theme, characters just really aren't there i i just really did not find myself caring about the characters there are gaps between each of the episode which they then work to go and sort of fill in so like you know between the first and second episode things happen and then it starts off and it's like wait a minute you know why are we here now and then they kind of have to go back and spend time precious time that they don't really have because this isn't a 36 episode arc they're working on. This is a four episode thing. So they're cramming in all this stuff to fill in the gaps between episodes. And then at the same time, they're not getting a lot of character development. So you've got these characters, you've got the, um, this character dog who I guess is sort of the Rambo equivalent that they were going for as this um, resistance leader didn't really care about him all that much. Um, the main character or the, the one who's sort of like the typical anime young main character, Shun, he's kind of like wishy-washy throughout and uh, just didn't really care that much about him. You're actually right, even though I, I like the show, but I, I think I connected more to what they were communicating rather than, you know, as an overall theme and overall story. And I, I guess it felt okay that it wasn't fully driven by the characters stories and and not all characters um, get to the end of their story as I said it's, it's sort of uh, open-ended or ends on a sorrowful not very hopeful note um, you know if anything the character of Gramps is the one who receives the most uh, uh, conclusion to his arc I suppose <laughs> but uh, you know I didn't have that uh, baggage I suppose of um, what it was riffing on so, so i didn't feel that age-old sci-fi setup uh, was cliched or anything or, or well it is it is cliched but it wasn't uh, bothersome that in the future resources are scarce and what is at war factions have risen a young hero will rise there that kind of thing it's um and the population growth and the resource exhaustion means that this wasn't terribly out of this world sci-fi or anything so you know they, they keep it grounded to a degree and they turn to obviously the moon for resources since we squandered our own planet so that's set up and it also is set up from a human's perspective where the perceived heroes because they were perceived as heroes uh, the colonists uh, they ultimately suffered at the hand of uh, corporation and the planet itself earth which is what i connected to that um they're on the front line saving something and they're not revered at all anymore they're forgotten and even though you're right they're sparse 
character depth and character gallery but they communicate that in monologues mind you like let's stop for two minutes let's get the monologue out of the way but i thought there was a um there was a maturity and a uh, and a dramatic picture they were forming by talking of um, these uh, issues so it it became something to connect to and not this setting the year of 3200 and then they make up tons of different stuff and different rules and uh, you can't <laughs> connect very well to that so I, I kind of appreciated that it wasn't um, terribly sci-fi they don't state what year i think it's set uh, but um, it doesn't feel like it's 5000 years into uh, into the future or anything that's what i connected to even though it's missing a full roster of appealing characters and their journeys. Oshi and the writers and the makers still got me with uh, that um, partly hopeless um, tone that uh, that uh, their generations of colonists have worked their buns off and um, they don't matter anymore. Uh, it's the uh, delivery of materials to us that matters and they don't see anything beyond that. And that, uh, that was an appealing little mini gut punch, I suppose. Uh, I, I appreciated that maturity. Anime doesn't need to be pitch black and mature for me to connect to it, obviously. I, I, I did appreciate that, that that was uh, well conveyed in my eyes, in combined with the uh, technically excellent uh, animation. I mean, w- w- when it cuts to action and there there's a pace to it and uh, there's uh, a fluidity to the uh, animation as these uh, uh, ships I think they're called debuggers that are both uh, ships that can fly uh, fly out into space but they also have extendable legs so they can set down on um, on ground and then do some battling uh, battling that way so I think uh, that was really neat and that that's a, a trademark of Oshi he can handle action like that so I can see where that uh, that comes from so, so I mean, is it too um, that, that that maturity? Is it um, is it too downbeat at all for you? Or do you or do you think they did state good dramatic points as they were talking of it, even though the characters weren't terribly appealing across the board for you? No, I mean, I think that the maturity is there. It shows. It, it's it's clear that they were trying to write for something that was going to be more than a vehicle for merchandise. By by Dallas, it would be a very boring toy because it's a face submerged in rock. Yeah, which for for anybody who played video games, at certain points when Dallas activates, it you know it gave me Sinistar vibes. So if you're familiar with the old stand-up arcade game Sinistar, which is like this star with a face on it that goes around and eats your ship, I was just like, oh, that thing's gonna wake up and it's gonna be angry. There's some interesting parallels, too, because one of the things they play at here is the different generations of colonists on the moon. Yes. So you've got the really young generation represented by Shun and, I guess, to some extent, uh, Dog and their differing values. Then you've got the what they call the Middle Agers, the, the middle age generation, which is represented by Shun's father, who's a miner who, you know, just wants to go and do his job and, and kind of be left alone. And then the the elders who were the original colonists who can still kind of remember coming from Earth and, you know, and settling. There is this interesting dynamic between them and each of their values. And in some ways, it's like because they have they they see things differently in terms of what's important. 
and they try to express this. And I think on some levels that's successful. I did find that really interesting. And, and it's kind of representative, too, of the behind the scenes power struggle that's going on where you've got, you know, sort of the older generation by Tori San and and kind of the way he sees things and this younger, you know, generation with uh, Oshi who's, you know, sort of sort of up and coming and, and may want to do things differently, but doesn't really have the experience. So I think there's a little bit of self-commentary that's kind of snuck in there as well, um, self-referential self commentary. And for me, I think that was probably the most interesting part. Unfortunately, it just, it really felt like they needed double the amount of episodes. They needed more stuff in between, like, you know, I, I wanted an episode in between one and two and an episode in between two and three and an episode in between three and four and then another episode at the end because I had so many questions still by the end and we never got any more any more content for whatever reason, whether, you know, it was because of the revenue it generated or because, you know, you had Oshi going on to do um, bigger and better things and you know, did the, some of the other people worked on it, went on to other projects as well. So it really did kick off the OVA movement, but um, we never got to see more of the story. I think a few episodes, additional episodes, it certainly wouldn't have hurt it. it it's it's not that big of a story. I mean, rather events have led up to this, and the and the rebellion starts uh, starts now, and then they try to pick spots to fill in backstories as they move forward with the scenario. Which I thought worked uh, uh, worked worked well. I, I, I understood it, uh, even though I wasn't dramatically sort of connected to the plight of Shun or Dog. But they, it was that exact thing that you described: the different uh, values and opinions of the, the different generations of uh, colonists. Uh, that some think that there's no there's no point to rebellion because that won't aid our homeland that won't aid earth we're here because we need to aid earth we need to provide resources so what you're doing might disrupt it and then you have the ones as you described in the middle that i i, I can't do anything else but go to work i don't see this making a terrible effect on matters it kind of lasted me quite a while those distinct opinions of uh, what the rebellion is for, who it is for, is it even a point uh, to it? You know, as I said, it would have been fun to maybe have a half an hour, additional half an hour or an additional hour, but it did overall feel like a fairly tight show. And uh, some characters like the Alex Liger character, who's hell-bent on crushing, obviously, the rebellion, isn't taken to literal cartoony levels necessarily it's a it's a calm enough character that wants to crush the rebellion but isn't ha, 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 this overly fascist uh character and, and yes the scenario and dialogue isn't you know we we, we felt it before we, we've seen it before but um i i, I do like uh specifics uh, such as the breakdown of control as uh they're they're, they're logging these um these uh, inhabitants of uh, of the moon through their headband and their specific number but when so many of them commit crimes they can't log all of that they can't keep control of that and de therefore the rebels find their in to rebellion you know, like, like they can't arrest all of us they can't incinerate all of us because that's what they do 
they, they, they all go into the furnace, uh, so to say. And what's left is just the um, the headbands, which is a macabre touch, even though we don't have a scene as such where they all get thrown into the furnace, but it's a bit of a macabre touch, uh, despite. So there, there are those are compelling pieces as this scenario feels uh, quite uh, quite tight. And whenever they um, li- uh, light up Dallas, whenever we get a sense of oh, D- Dallas isn't destroyed, it's awakening. Uh, what is it? Is it a weapon? Is it conscious? Is someone steering it? Was it built by aliens? By not answering that, um, you might cheat the audiences out of a few answers that I might have wanted, but I didn't mind that in the context of these four episodes and this limited scenario that Dallas was left as a bit of a mystery, as a bit of a possible supernatural uh, entity. And I think the design is appealing too, that that, that face that's partially submerged in um, Moon's surface. So, uh, but I don't know how you felt if, if you felt like you obviously need to answer some questions or was it okay that they kept, kept Dallas a little bit uh, ambiguous? Uh, well, I, I would have liked more answers by the end. And, you know, I, I think they were kind of leaving it open for, you know, a, a Dallas 2 or something. I, I did like the face concept. I mean, uh, it's very obviously, you know, again, <clears throat> understanding you go back to the 1980s and we're, we're thinking of like the famous uh, Mars face rock, right? Oh, yes, which yes. they now which they now know what that is because of. HD cameras and Mars rovers and things <laughs> that have since come about. But back then, you know, it was like this big enigma. Back in the day when everything was fussy, kids, we yeah. uh, had much more fun <laughs> yeah. believing the, stuff the moon was made of there. cheese. <laughs> I like that part of it that they're playing with it and they're playing with, with the ideas and they're trying to push um, the hard science side of it. It's It's clear that, you know, you'll get scenes like that where it's like, you know, oh, hard science, bullets flying on the moon and, and stuff like that. And then in the very next scene, they're they're putting mechs together that you could very easily see as a uh, we're going to sell this on the shelves, you know. But that being said, I mean, the mech designs, they were trying to stick with designs that they thought would be practical. Right. So you're not you're not getting these fancy. Uh, it'll take you, you know, a thousand hours to put them together piece by piece Gundam models <laughs> kind of things. You're not getting these things that like pull it out of the package and play with it like the the Macross toys. Um, but by the same token, these weren't designs that would go on to be remembered, I, I, I think. So like with the, with a lot of the Macross models, you you get things that go on to inspire Transformers, Battletech, um, you know, you know, lots of uh, variations that came from those sort of original designs. And here, I think the the mech designs—they're not pretty. They're more functional. They're just going for that idea of, all right, we've got them. What would, you know, how would they be used? What would they look like? It would be too creepy, by the way, to pick up uh, a toy based on the cyborg dog because it has uh, wires yeah. outside <laughs> of its body. It looks assembled like a Frankenstein monster, and uh, yeah. it's evocative in the show and dangerous. So they 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 do manufactured that very very quickly that was one of the gaps in the show like wait a minute he's he's already solved that issue with uh, his dead dog okay they're, they're already cloned in the thousands and uh, in the millions yeah which is like you know uh, come on liger you're really gonna do that to your pooch come on <laughs> i mean that that's the trait of a really bad guy i don't care what you say um 
But I mean, yeah, the, like the cyborg dogs, you get the understanding that, okay, that's the kind of stuff that Oshi cared about and, and Tori-san much less so. You know, those moments. I, again, well done, you know, interesting, good animation, uh, good use of colors. Would you agree this resides in that middle ground if you were to sort of think, okay, think macros, that's TV. Think this, this is OVA, think the macros movie. Do you think uh, this resides in that middle ground that it's a, it's a, it's better than TV but not quite to the technical standards of a movie? Yeah, I mean, for, for that era, absolutely. I mean, if you look at TV today, no. One of the things they talk about in, in the documentary is that it's very interesting because some of Oshi's comments, he ha- he having become the master, is now kind of disparaging what anime has become today. You know, the, he talks a little bit about the repetition and he he just has not overtly negative, but it, you, you can tell he's kind of down on what anime has become. But technically, I mean, if you look at some of the stuff that's just come out in the past year for television, it's just so much better in terms of the vibrancy of colors and, and and some of the things they're doing just in terms of the animation. Um, you know, not even talking about story or narrative or anything like that, just in terms of the technical side, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, been over three decades. So obviously there's been improvements and it, and it looks better, but for this era, yeah, I think the, it really sets the standard for the direct to video releases being something that's superior technically to, what was being produced for regular television and still maybe not up to par with some films. I mean, there are some character designs here, especially I think with Liger where I was getting a fist of the North star vibe, you know, a little bit from his design and and some of the ways that in which those characters were designed. And I think if you look at the animation here, comparing with like the fist of the North star series versus the films later that you would probably find it falling somewhere in the middle as well. Yeah, they, they don't. It, it is technically accomplished, and uh, what happens, but only rarely in this show in Dallas is they they have some camera movements that are a bit more elaborate, where the camera you know goes underneath and above and all of that. In movies, we would have would have probably had more of that. The Fist of the North Star movie did a few of those shots rather than being static as the TV show was. So it, it clearly can do some things, but can't spend time on such elaborate shots uh, uh, for for 30 minutes in their action scenes and, and all of that. Uh, some of my final notes, I suppose, uh, again, connecting to um, the emotional undercurrent in a general sense that I think is there, that these uh, these workers, the Lunarians, uh, they've never been to Earth, some of them. They, they sacrifice so much and for what personal gain because they, they lost comrades along the way in uh, both um, clashes, but also accidents. And uh, when they're lost, they're just disposed. Uh, as I said, they're, 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 they weren't buried, most of them. They were, they were, they were burned, they were incinerated. And uh, even on Earth, they, they say that they would be considered by some as not only different, but not worthy people. And that's fair intelligence. It's very sad. There's also fair intelligence, and uh, I, I like when the movie, uh, well, the series, stops to uh, talk a little bit of that, uh, and uh, it, as it mixes action, I, I, I found myself finding that uh, the show has a, has a good pace. It moves uh, the theme and the plot forward, um, and especially towards the reveal of, uh, uh, at the end of episode four, 
which which I won't spoil, but it's an evocative reveal and a very sad one. To I think uh, it's the strongest imagery and the strongest writing that then leads the film into a again a sorrowful ending note that uh, functions well enough as an ending. But yeah, you you maybe you wanted like cut to year later 10 years later you know what happens uh, does this uh, continue uh, are we getting more generations of uh, colonists uh, or not but uh, it's, for, for my money's worth uh, they do really uh, animate some some powerful images and evokes a powerful mood towards the end uh, there's a piece of uh, tv voiceover or radio voiceover from the earth right at the end that's kind of deflating if you will i was on board on that uh, even though because we, we, we never sold a fun show really so it was not a surprise that they were going to pull the rug out from underneath us by concluding it in that way but um, i think the, it, it's a strong um, strong ending to uh, to what I, what I think is a strong show this afternoon i'm gonna go back to gundam and uh, macros and uh, see everything that uh, dallas ripped off and i'm gonna change my grade accordingly <laughs> <laughs> i'll see you in five years <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah i, I watch slow i'm uh, i'm only on like episode 13 or 14 of uh, oz and uh, wonderful wizard of oz and i've had it for a few months so that should tell you everything you need to know uh, but uh, you know, without spoiling it those um, those images of the ending uh, the ending journey I think it's something I would guess viewers take with them, especially as we get that reveal of uh, um, the great space that they uncover, if you will. Uh, was that uh, at all appealing as a as a cap to uh, to the story here? It's on a you know sort of a post story reveal um, in some ways, which I think worked really well for taking part of the part of the narrative that was established. Um, you know, part of the position of the elders and 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 expressing it a, a bit further. You know, it was a a moment of more silence than anything else. You know, it's like much of the film where there was a lot of narrative going on, or you know, uh, there were some government scenes. You know, people talking in 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 meetings and things to sort of explain things, and then there is a little bit of a backstory reveal about this event that happened early on that you find that they finally reveal okay who was actually behind it and that's all kind of standard fare but i really liked that sort of closing out with um the the long moon ride and it's sort of how that comes about too it did feel a little kind of uh, again it felt like there needed to be more between that you know sort of how that scene comes about and 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 who's giving the access for that to happen and, and stuff. It felt like I needed, I needed a intermediary scene before that. I mean, you don't absolutely have to have it. You can kind of infer, you know, as an audience member, you can, can kind of leave that to your own devices. But for me, I just kind of, I'm, I'm again, used to a 36 episode arc where not only are they filling in the blanks with exposition, exposition, but usually for one or two episodes, they're going back in, and repeating stuff that you've already seen because they, the they dreaded the recap episode. <laughs> this is this is kind of on the opposite end of that. You know, it's like truncated and condensed down to where if you're used to that 36 episode arc, that you are kind of saying, I kind of want a bit more. But I do think that despite that, that final sequence, because it's 
just focusing on the travel, the animation, the reveal, that it works really, really well. Because I think for me, less is more in that instance. It is interesting to see too that there is an epilogue that plays out in the end credits, which is not something that a lot of anime typically does. So there's little bits of story exposition being told um, with these short kind of animated sequence sequences that happen through the end credits as well. Yeah, they do a thing where uh, they tell a little post story and then they freeze on characters and they become more uh, pen pencil sketches. Uh, they transition into that, so uh, they we're left with like character portraits after in uh, one or two cases anyway. After a little bit of story has been uh, has been told, indeed. And I do think that it's interesting to refer back to the documentary. Um, I think it's um, I think it was the sound director on on, on it, um, Shiba Sugiharu, who says, if you look at this time period, animation was not something in Japan that was really well considered for adults. And so out of this time period, you get films like um, Nausicaa or you get Beautiful Dreamer. And then you start to get this sense that animation as an art form is being elevated um, beyond merchandising status, which if you go back to the seventies again, I mean, you know, we've covered early animation, but you get into the seventies and you've got your, you know, your, your giant robot shows, your Shogun warrior shows, your things that are really, you know, kind of being geared for the, the Shonen crowd, the young boy crowd, you've got speed racer, um, space battleship Yamato, stuff like that in this era that again, as a merchandising vehicle is fine, but it's interesting that he says, here's the point in this era where you really start to see it break out and being put on the big screen, being put into video animation, direct to video animations like this and being so well received by adults and, and an adult audience as something serious. Um, so it's, it was interesting to see his comment that, um, this is the generation of, of films that's doing that. As for availability of uh, Dallas, uh, the Region 1 DVD released by Discotech Media contains all four episodes and a retrospective documentary we talked about called Remembering Dallas. And it's also readily available still for reasonable prices. I believe you can also stream the show if you're in the US uh, or use a VPN on Crunchyroll, but the documentary is DVD exclusive. Uh, so that release is uh, worth pursuing if you like the sound of it. But uh, it's good that we get a an old show on Crunchyroll. Uh, I don't use it that much because uh, my I like my older shows. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that's why I sort of found it appealing that oh, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz is on there, both dubbed and in uh, Japanese. Um, and I ended up buying the Blu-ray of, uh, of Oz because it's one of those uh, uh, 52 episodes in standard definition on one Blu-ray disc. So it's quite, uh, quite convenient uh, anyway. So... Uh, and, and I watched the, almost the entirety of Fist of the North Star on Crunchy Roll. The 152 episodes, Paul Fox. Kudos to you, sir. Kudos to you. I think I watched like 140 and then I got the SD on BD release because I wanted to support it. So I watched the last one on, last ones on uh, the third disc. I think 20 or more DVDs to cover that entire series. Free Blu-ray discs. And, and the transfers look good. And they're open with the fact that they're standard definition. So, 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 so therefore, I don't think uh, they're itching to get Dallas a Blu-ray upgrade unless 
it was uh, remastered in HD because four episodes fit on one disc already, including the documentary. So we'll see, but it looks good. So, uh, so that's us for this Japan on Fire. Uh, no plan yet as to where do you go in terms of anime or should I switch to live action or whatever, but uh, I, I certainly will... Uh, Put uh, put my uh, thinking cap on and uh, consult with uh, the people who I do this show with, including Paul Fox, and we'll see what we come up with. with uh, but for now, this is uh, uh, this is uh, the sort of semi conclusion, I suppose, of uh, anime firsts uh, because I haven't thought of anything else. But uh, thank you at any rate for um, for listening, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. And uh, for all your podcast on fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. You'll find this show all the other shows in, in the Japan of Fire uh, back catalogue, including our uh, reviews and discussions on uh, Momotaro, Sacred Sailors, and The White Snake and Chantress, the first um, anime movies in black and white and color, respectively. So I'll keep my plugging short, but um, please uh, plug your uh, resurrected podcast. Uh, it uh, resurrected akin to uh, akin to Dallas or something. Or wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't that have been great if it did it on its own? Like it worked out its kinks on its own and became a fully sentient podcast on its own rather than you ripping your hair out for like a year trying to get it fixed. That would have been great, right? Yeah, I mean, as long as it doesn't shoot me with a laser. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can find us at uh, concast.com and it's uh, east screen, west screen. And uh, get it uh, wherever you get your podcasts and uh, all of that. So it was probably a nice surprise to people that subscribe to your stream that um, all of a sudden it popped up and uh, like a week later a new one so uh, we were very happy to see that uh, as devoted fans of your show but uh, in the meantime uh, for this uh, episode of Japan on Fire on Dallas I've been Kenny B and with me was Paul Fox so say goodbye buddy bye bye <laughs> <laughs>